Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Back Chat. That's the sound of summer in the newsroom, the sound of pipettes lying abandoned on bench tops, the sound of scientists not answering their phones because they're all having a well-earned summer break. In Backchat, we reflect on the science stories of the month, and it's the summer month of August. Our reporters and editors get to tell you what they really think of what's been going on this month. I'm Kerry Smith, and I have two very special guests joining me today. One is Nature's Celeste Beaver. Hi there, I uh, edit Nature's News section. And today we also have an external special guest joining us. On the line from NPR's headquarters in Washington, D.C., is their science correspondent, Jeff Brumfield. Hi, Carrie. Nice to be here. Now, coming up this month, Japan has restarted one of the nuclear reactors in the Sendai power plant. After all, its nuclear power plants were turned off due to the Fukushima disaster. What does it mean, the restart for Japan's energy plans? We'll also be talking about the summer doldrums, among news reporters at least, that well-recognised phenomenon of there being no science news in the summer. What are the impacts of summer lulls on science coverage? And since we have Jeff Brumfield here, we'll be comparing science stories and coverage at Nature versus NPR. So first, let's go to Japan, where the Sendai nuclear power plant switched a reactor back on after four years. Um, It looked like that wasn't on the cards at all after the Fukushima disaster, which is in 2011. And Jeff, you covered that story at the time, didn't you? Can you remind us what happened? Basically, um, what happened was that a rather large tsunami hit the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, swamped it, and over the course of hours and days after that, uh, three of the reactors experienced meltdowns of varying degrees. Uh, It released radioactivity across Fukushima Prefecture, and it continues to be a huge mess for the Japanese. It's definitely the biggest nuclear accident since Chernobyl. And what happened in the wake of that to Japan's, I mean, energy plans? I mean, nuclear was quite a a big factor before that. Yeah. So, I mean, historically, Japan uh, had about 30% of its electricity coming from nuclear power. And obviously, you know, when this Fukushima accident happened, um, that shook everything up. So Japan shut down all its reactors and started importing um, a lot of fossil fuels. Um, And it's remained that way ever since. It's had a drag effect on the economy. 
Of course, any sort of plans for limiting greenhouse gas emissions have been impacted in a big way. It's it's definitely changed the nature of their economy and and the way they power their their cities and their factories. I just wanted to weigh in here uh, because we did this story last week about the switch on and sort of picking up there from Jeff. um, One interesting question was, now that this plant is switching on, is Japan just going back to business as normal or was there a lasting effect from Fukushima? The answer seems to be it's going right back to business as normal, which is something of a disappointment to some of the people who got excited about the whole energy landscape being disrupted and maybe um, giving a bigger role to renewables. And the other thing that was interesting about it is it happens just before the big climate change conference this December and sort of throws a spotlight on Japan's commitments that it's made there. And one thing that Fukushima has allowed Japan to do, because it, it switched off nuclear and started importing all this natural gas uh, its emissions went up. That means it's able to sort of cut its emissions ahead of the climate change conference. But if you look at what Japan kind of should be doing, it's not really enough. So it looks like they're making a big cut, but actually a better comparison is to pre-Fukushima. And if you look at that, nothing's really changed. Yeah, Celeste, I mean, I, I noticed actually, as I was just looking into this before we talked, that their targets are all against 2013 levels, right? So, I mean, this is like in a perverse sort of way, Fukushima, you could argue, helps them mm-hmm. um, in meeting climate change pr- commitments because it made everything so much worse in Japan. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are very few, as you say, Celeste, there was this brave new world envisaged where yeah. Japan would be the first place to kind of run off renewables a lot more than other places. People were watching it to see how it would go and and now we we're here back to as Basically much as back to where before. we were yeah there's a bit um it's kind of interesting in some ways it looks like the way that the japan's energy uh markets are set up doesn't really favor renewables and certainly doesn't favor wind which might be a big a big one for them potentially but there's things to do with the way the the same people who run the utilities also grant access to the grid so though they have no incentive to let these wind com- any wind companies in because they'd basically be cutting off their own fossil fuel companies and there isn't anyone who's kind of incentivized to look for that flexibility so there are sort of there are reasons for this lack of change but it's a bit depressing now, in the case of Sendai, of course, this wasn't a plant, correct me, Jeff, if I'm wrong, that was damaged in the same way as Fukushima by the tsunami, And but it's restarting only because it's met some new, more stringent safety protocols. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, Sendai wasn't damaged at all. I mean, this is um, in Kyushu Prefecture. It's a long way from Fukushima, relatively speaking. And as I understand it, the entire reason it was shut down was that they needed to have um, new safety protocols and new improvements in place um, that would supposedly prevent a, you know, Fukushima style meltdown from happening. The uh, Nuclear Regulatory Authority of Japan finally approved all of that, and um, so the restart has started. Of course, I don't know if anyone saw this, but uh, just a couple of days ago, it looks like there's a volcano now that's flaring up near the plant about 30 miles away. I think that just shows like what a, what a problem area Japan really is for nuclear reactors um, because, you know, it's on these all these tectonic plates and... Uh, There's lots of volcanic activity, so the Japanese are getting a little nervous about that. But the nuclear plant claims it's got it all covered. Um, 
it can it can withstand up to six inches of ash, according to one press report I saw. Aside from the um, the effects of the switch on on the market and the, the implications for the energy landscape, what's been the emotional reaction? Does anyone know in Japan of of turning one of the reactors back on? Well, the reports I've seen have said there's been lots of protests, which I don't find very surprising. I mean, I think nuclear remains very unpopular amongst the Japanese public following Fukushima. At the moment, there's plans for about 20 of the 25 nuclear reactors in Japan to come back online. I, I would wonder if all of them will. I mean, you know, local prefixtures are opposing some of these restarts. Um, there's lots of bureaucracy standing in the way. Um you know, and it, it just remains to be seen. Now then, on to our second story, if I can call it a story, because it's really about the lack of stories. Uh, it is a period we refer to as the summer doldrums. It's August. Lots of people have gone on holiday. Uh, Jeff, what kind of effects has this had on news uh, at your end? Well, NPR, um, and I think broadcast generally always struggles this time of year because our shows don't get any shorter um, but there's a lot less news. So things start showing up from my news desk. Uh, let's see. This morning, it was a report that someone had grown a brain in a Petri dish, um, a researcher at Ohio State University. Earlier in the week, I was dealing with inflatable space elevators. You know, last year, it was Elon Musk's Hyperloop. It's sort of a time when improbable things start slipping into the news. I got excited about the brain. I of didn't, re- I didn't did. realize that was a doldrum story. It is in the sense that it's completely unpeer-reviewed research <laughs> done by a pharmacologist. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not, and I, I, you know, English libel laws being what they are, I don't mean to imply anything untoward. But, <laughs> you know, I don't know anything about it. I'm mainly a physics reporter. But it's the sort of thing that might not get noticed um, by our newscast, which is normally dealing with very intense breaking news, except there is no news. I covered the launch of the Japanese resupply mission um, to the space station as well. Now, that's not to diminish the role of resupply missions to the station, especially recently. But, um, you know, this sort of thing takes on a new importance in August. And so if you, Jeff, if you were to tag any of your stories with, and I'm sure this doesn't exist as a keyword, with the tag summer doldrums, which would be up there with, you know, the top summer doldrums story that you've that you've covered and enjoyed? Oh, Boy, let's take a look. I mean, you know, the thing is, I feel like I do summer doldrum stories all year round. Like, I mean, there's no story too silly for me to try to slip onto NPR's airways. It's just in your nature. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I did the space elevator, the inflatable space elevator earlier this week. I was involved with that a little bit. I should say, if you don't know what this is about, basically, a Canadian company got a patent for, I believe it's a 12-mile, 20-kilometer high sort of tower from which they would launch a space airplane. No real word on how you build a 12-mile-high tower or how you build a space airplane, Um, but, you know, it was enough to get into the news. They had some graphics and things and... A patent, you know, a patent sounds good, so um, so people start picking it up. Any other kind of classic summer doldrum stories at your end? Oh man, yeah the um, the space salad. Did you guys report on the space salad? We did not, but no, I observed. Passed. You passed. <laughs> yes, I observed too. So um, basically, the astronauts aboard the International Space Station grew some salad leaves, some red romaine lettuce, and I had to sit for half an hour watching them prepare and eating salad, which tasted like salad, 
even in space. And then I had to write a story about it. And that's the sort of thing that happens to you in August. Um, that being said, it gave me the opportunity to to put a lot of really bad salad puns on air, which I was very pleased about. And I'm going to prove, Jeff, to our audience that you did indeed insert a lot of salad puns uh, into your piece with this clip. The space salad tasted out of this world. That's awesome. Good. Tastes good? Yeah. I like that. <laughs> kind of like arugula. This lettuce could be just the tip of the iceberg. There's plans for cabbage, cherry tomatoes, and even potatoes as we leaf into the final frontier. I mean, it's terrible. When I when I was in the edit, my I actually sort of collapsed in a post-pun heap after I said that because it was so bad, but I was on a tight deadline. It was the best I could do. Did the salad have dressing on it? It, it did. It had balsamic. Yeah, they, that was one, okay. of the, uh, one of the big questions that the ground crew was wondering yes. about, how they would eat them. Me too, because it's such a big difference. If, if it's without the dressing, you think, why did they bother? If it's got the dressing... Then it's a story. It sort of transforms the space experience, yeah. Is that why you passed on it, Celeste? Was I, didn't, was no I couldn't dressing. pin down the dressing fast enough, so at that point... I thought, well, this is, the story is dependent on this. Uh, let's just move on. In August, you still have to make some tough decisions. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Celeste, has, has the summer had a noticeable effect on the stress levels of the newsroom? I Yeah, I just love, I love it. It's been wonderful. And it's, it's made me, I mean, it has really slowed down. We've got fewer people, fewer stories. But um, interestingly, you might think that would be a problem. But it's made me realise we have no problem finding stories and what it what makes our life so difficult most of the time is there's too many stories and we spend a lot of time discussing them what their fate's going to be how urgent they are um which section they're going to be assigned to whether we cover them at all and that seems to have all gone away and life has become very simple a few things happen we pick that we pick our favorites we write about them and a sort of soft calm has descended and perhaps you know there uh, the optimist in me says well the summer is when you can write those slightly more expansive thought pieces, perhaps, about inflatable space elevators or the fact that someone invented some underpants that can protect uh, male genitalia from Wi-Fi signals. That's another story that The Telegraph uh, published in early August, which I quite enjoyed. I would label that with the keyword <laughs> summer doldrums. Yeah, silly season, absolutely. Where, where are they selling them? <laughs> so, Celeste, I mean, you've just said you know, that you find this all very relaxing. But as sort of, you know, nature is the, I think of it as, as one of the establishments that protects the integrity of science mm -hmm. journalism Absolutely. worldwide. I mean, does it bother you these these somewhat ridiculous science stories find their way into the pages of papers and, dare I say, onto the airwaves of August um, news stations? Yeah, a little bit. But I have to say the one thing that makes it all OK is that no one is reading them. So our traffic <laughs> over the last few weeks has just plunged. And we've had a couple of spikes when we've put something really hot, like the octopus genome, the, the superconductivity yesterday. And these are things, I guess, that no matter what, there's always someone in the world, you know, in other parts of the world, it isn't summer, so maybe they're reading it. But in general, the kind of baseline that you would normally expect a story to get just isn't there. And so this is another reason why it just everything is calm. And I mean, even uh, actually... Yeah, like on um, Friday when we had this Greek bailout uh, deal going through, there was one, the Greek parliament was voting on it in the morning and then um, the Council of Ministers in the EU was voting on it in the afternoon. 
And we had this great scoop uh, about what this was going to mean for Greek researchers. We talked to the Greek research minister. And the reporter said to me, I said, we've got to put this live as soon as the deal is sealed. And she said, there's no point. It's like the equivalent of Christmas in Greece is this week. There's um, some kind of religious holiday, but that's very, very important there. And everyone, and also everyone's out on the beach looking at the Persid meteor shower. And she was just like, no one's going to read it. And I said, no, they will. This is the bailout. The whole country depends on it. And sure enough, we put the story up and no one cared all weekend. And then there's been some interest this week, but I guarantee that story had a, you know had we released it at a different time would have done way better so that yeah that's my only comfort is no one's reading these stories <laughs> well luckily our stats lead us to believe that people still do download the podcast uh, to um, listen to you know really? from on the beach rather than at the bench <laughs> let's say finally jeff i thought i'd take advantage of your presence to ask you about the differences between working for nature as a reporter which you did for years and working now as you do in radio at npr the kinds of stories, you know, let, let's start with the positives that you wish you could still cover, that you wish you were at nature for, but you can't you can't make them work at NPR. Well, you know, there's always Eater. Those of you who know me know me mainly for my Eater coverage. Um, the Eater being the large fusion reactor in the south of France that is perpetually under construction. Um, so, you know, big policy stories like that, uh, which are important, but don't get the attention perhaps they always deserve. Um, you can't really do it national public radio, I don't think. Or we, we should also mention that actually, even when you were at Nature, people were trying to stop you writing about ETA as frequently as you tried. <laughs> yeah, I feel like every reporter has one of those, right? That one topic that you just cannot stop writing about and no one wants to hear about. But um Sadly, I've been pried loose of that one. Um, I think I think here's the thing is like a radio story has to have basically a single sort of thought or idea and a print story can have two or three or more sometimes depending on who's editing and, and what they want. But um, I think that simplicity is uh, is both a blessing and a curse. You know, it, it makes it makes things much clearer and much more enjoyable but at the same time it kind of um it does prevent you from doing certain stories um about nuclear fusion reactors in the south of france for example do you, do you find that the stories you have to do now have to um have a character or a person to carry them more than they did at nature because this you have to interview this person on air live so they better be interesting. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's a huge thing. It's not even that they have to be interesting. It's just, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as having a voice. I mean, take, um, well, I don't know. Let's take Eater, which is a fusion reactor in the south of France, which I used to. Why not? <laughs> I love Eater, by the way. It's a real shame we never worked together, Jeff. I think, you know. <laughs> oh, my of, God. I love stories on Eater. So, <laughs> I want more. <laughs> Well, it's August. I can force your listeners to hear about Eater. Um, but but anyway, I mean, seriously, for a minute, a story where you have anonymous sources, you can't have anonymous sources on the radio. It doesn't work. You need to have someone's voice. That's a, that, that actually is incredibly restricting. Um, not necessarily in a bad way, though. I mean, I feel like anonymous sources get overused often. And, and if you can't get people to say it out loud, then... A lot of it's not worth saying. So, but it, but that's a huge difference. And I've heard there's a, this sort of urban myth that persists about, 
you know, the NPR rule of thumb for how many numbers you're allowed to say per minute of audio. Yeah, no, that's true. What is the number you've heard, the number of numbers? Per minute, let's say, is like two or something. I, I would say that's too high. I would say it's like one one per story. I mean, to be honest with you, if you have like three statistics in, in an audio story, people won't remember any of them. Probably, or just one. I do love that, actually. I mean, I after 12 years of working in nature, boy, so many numbers. <laughs> it's good discipline as well, because it forces you to think what the numbers mean. I like that numbers, uh, lack thereof, are liberating, and I'm, I have enjoyed how liberated Celeste certainly is by the summer doldrums. She's smiling like never before. She's sitting here relaxed as if she doesn't have to go and edit something in one minute's time. Um, so, well, I think with that about wraps us up for this month. Um, thank you to Celeste Beaver, to Jeff Brumfield, and for more of their work, check out nature.com slash news and npr.org or keep an eye on their respective Twitter feeds. Can I just say one other thing, just to kind of save my, like, obviously if it was like this all the time, I would be bored, you know, so that I, I don't, think you're don't get fired. bored now. <laughs> um, but do you want us to say our Twitter handle yeah, out loud? Uh, give me give me your Twitter handle so people can find you. I am at Celeste Beaver. That's my full, my first name and my last name with no punctuation. Jeff? And I'm at G Brumfield, and there is no D on Brumfield. I can't emphasize that enough. It is not a field of Brums. Why not? No. Because <laughs> my ancestors uh, forgot it on the form. Uh, <laughs> and I'm at Minnie Kerry. Come and find us on Twitter or drop us a line, podcast at nature.com. And thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.